Well, we are in part three of our Redefining series, so if you've got a Bible or a Bible app on your phone, go ahead and open it up to 1 Corinthians 13. In this series, we are seeking to fill in the blank, and two weeks ago, we filled in the blank and saw that love is a verb, that love is this action. It's a force to go out and to bless others. It's this agape, unconditional love. And then last week, we filled in the blank. We saw that love is tough. We saw first that it's tough to love because it's tough to be patient. It's tough to always be kind. It's tough to bear all things. It's tough to, you know, not keep a record of wrongs. But love itself is actually tougher. And and so we filled in the blank. But this week, we're going to fill in the blank, and we're going to see that love is forever. Well, the past couple weeks— I have done, un- unintentionally, but I've just done like an internet search. I, a couple weeks ago, I shared how I went on Amazon, and we searched under books and various topics. And we saw, you know, the, like, you know when you put in happiness, that, you know, 92,000-some people or, or search results came, came back. And we, we saw all these search results. Well, then last week, I did a, a Google image search. I just wanted to see what would happen if you typed in the word love and what kind of images came back. And so, as I sat down to work on my message this week, I'm like, "Ah, you know what? Let's just keep the trend going. Let's do a Google search. And knowing that we're going to be talking about love is forever, I typed into Google, what lasts forever? And so, one of the first things you see is diamonds, right? Diamonds last forever. But then I had to laugh when on some forum, someone said, you know, well, diamonds are forever. And someone responded, no, I think plastic bags are forever, That one actually made me laugh. Uh, Another one, memories are forever. There was quite a few images about how memories last forever. But then someone else being silly said, no, I think you meant fruitcake. All right, so these are some of the things that are out there. But by far, the number one response to what lasts forever was nothing. They were saying that nothing lasts forever. And if you think about it, you can see why people would come to that conclusion. Because fashion changes, hairstyles change. I mean, when you look at some of those 80s hairstyles, you are glad hairstyles change. Uh, you know, our president, we, you know, we're in an election season, we're going to change there. Just had the Super Bowl a couple weeks ago, you change, you know, champions. I mean, everything seems to change. And so it leads you to believe that nothing lasts forever. E- even when it comes to something like love. We look at love often in relationships, and maybe you had a, a boyfriend or girlfriend, you know, in middle school or high school or two or three or four. I was lucky enough to get one, uh, you know, but you have this relationship, and it doesn't last. They, they well, in my case, they break up with you, and, you know, it, it leaves you kind of going, like, I don't think love lasts. And then we, we all have family, friends that have gone through divorce, or some of us have even gone through divorce. And you start thinking, yeah, when I stood on that altar and said I do, I meant it, and then it didn't work out. I don't know that love really lasts. And and even if someone makes it 50, 60, 70 years in marriage, death will come and take one of them away, and the marriage ends. And so I can see why people would come to the conclusion that nothing lasts forever. And yet today, as we get into 1 Corinthians 13, we're going to see very vividly Paul say that love never ends. That love keeps going. It is forever. And it makes you wonder, like, how in the world can he say that when we all have seen love not last? It's because Paul has a different definition of love. And that's why today we've got to redefine again what love is so that we can see that love really is forever forever. 
that it isn't the temporary thing that our culture thinks it is, that instead it lasts far longer than we ever could imagine. And when we get that definition of love, it will radically change the way we love those around us, and we will begin to love for the long term. So, Father, I pray as I jump in right now into the Scriptures that you would be our teacher this morning. May you help us to understand 1 Corinthians 13 in a new way, or just refresh what we've already have known. And it's in Jesus' name I ask for it. Amen. So hopefully your Bibles open up to 1 Corinthians 13. Last week we finished at verse 7, so today we pick it up at verse 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now, if you heard last week's message, maybe you were just as frustrated as I was when I read verses 4 through 7, because it didn't feel complete. If you're like me, now you've got to keep in mind, as a pastor, I have officiated a lot of weddings. I was the young adult pastor at a, a church prior to this, and so I think in my eight years or so, I did about 50 weddings uh, there, All right? A number of those weddings, someone would walk up to a microphone, read 1 Corinthians 13, and almost always they would start at verse 4, and they would end at verse 8, part A. They would end with love never fails. And so for years, I thought that the little dude who went through putting the— I have no idea if he was little. He, he probably was bigger than me. But anyway, some guy went through and put these little chapter markings and, and verse markings, and he put the 8, and I thought he put it in the wrong place. I thought he needed to put it three words later, that, that he messed up the poem. But this month, as I've been studying this chapter, I finally got it. I know why he stuck the eight where he did. Because Paul goes from helping them see that it's tough to love, but that love is tougher. And he helps them to get this. And now he's shifting the definition to undergo deeper, to help them understand more, and help them see that love is forever. And to make this brilliantly clear to them, Paul grabs on to some of the things that the Corinthians would hold dear, the things that they would long for, some of the things that they would covet. And he's going to help them see these ultimates that you think are so wonderful, they're going to fade. Love, though, doesn't. You got to remember, we are in the middle of a conversation about the spiritual gifts. Paul began it back in chapter 12. Last fall, we uh, did a series called Gifted, and we looked at these spiritual gifts. And in chapter 14, he continues on this whole topic of spiritual gifts. So we can't just take chapter 13 and think it's only about love. He's still talking about the spiritual gifts. He's trying to help them put, put the spiritual gifts in their proper place. And that's why we see here him point out three different spiritual gifts. The first one you see him point out is prophecy. Now, prophecy has a dual nature to it. It, it, it has both an aspect of foretelling, but also forthtelling. The, the foretelling, the, the prophesying of the future, that's the most common. Uh, that's what we know of. If you've ever watched a, a movie about, you know, a fantasy movie, you'll hear them talk about the prophecy. You know, it, it was some wise old sage in the past who predicts about the future, and it's just vague enough. You don't know what it means. But then when it happens, you realize, wow, they were specific enough, and the prophecy came true. Well, God used prophets in the Old Testament regularly. And they would foretell the future. In fact, did you know that there are over 300 prophecies about the coming of the Messiah? 
Today in Kids Creek, they are learning that there was a 400-year gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So you count those 400 years. Then there might be hundreds of years before some of the other books were written. So you're talking hundreds, even thousands of years. God is saying things about Jesus, and then they're fulfilled. And I heard that statistically, for one man to fulfill even like eight of these prophecies would be just like a mathematical, wow, just a miracle. I mean, it would be astronomically high. And yet for one man to fulfill 300, it's impossible unless you're God. That's what the prophets would do is foretell the future. However, they had a bigger role. They didn't just foretell, they also forth, did forthtelling. They would tell the people, here's what you're doing wrong now. And if you read through the, the minor prophets, the major prophets, you would see there's more of foretelling than there is of foretelling. Foretelling was just a small microcosm of what they said. But they would say to the Jewish people, here's what you're doing wrong. And sometimes the people listened. And sometimes they didn't. Have you ever been in a church service where you hear a pastor preaching and he's reading through the scriptures and he says something and all of a sudden you just feel like conviction. Like you almost feel like he's talking straight to you. That's probably not because he's reading your mail. By the way, I, I've never read any of your mail uh, unless I accidentally was at your house. But I, I do not go through your mail. I don't surf your Facebook going, okay, how can I preach to them? You know, if that happens, it's because God is speaking to you, and that is forth-telling. And it's in those moments where it's like prophecy happening, but it's not about foretelling. It's saying, here's what God wants to say to you now. But notice, whether it's forth-telling or foretelling, the origin of the prophecy is God. And it is God speaking to humans through a human. And the, the Corinthians would love to have that gift. They would think that would be so cool to have God speak through them to people because people would think, wow, you're something. So they would keep that pretty high. But there was another gift that they also put pretty high, and that was the gift of tongues. And the spiritual gift of tongues was the ability to speak in a language you'd never studied before. And if, if you were with us, oh man, a year and a half ago when we started the First Corinthians, when we did our friend request series with chapter 1, we talked about the city of Corinth. It was right between the northern part of Greece and the southern part. And there's a little isthmus, and Corinth was right on that. And so if you were traveling between the northern and southern sections, you'd almost have to go through Corinth. Plus, Corinth was right on a bay, so there was a lot of ship trade that came through. Well, that meant lots of people, lots of cultures, and lots of different languages. So how cool would it be that you could go out and talk about how great this God is in a language you never studied before? That would be pretty amazing, wouldn't it? You would look pretty cool. But then there was a third gift that Paul mentioned here, and that's knowledge. Back in chapter 12, he, he called it a word of knowledge. It means that God gives you some sort of insight into a situation, into someone's life. It, you didn't go and read about it. You didn't study it. You didn't overhear it from someone else. It's like God spoke directly to you, and you just have knowledge about a situation. Well, to the Corinthians, they lived in Greek culture. The Greeks were all about knowledge. They craved wisdom. I mean, for instance, Right now, I want you to think, how many ancient Turkish philosophers do you know of? 
Okay, I didn't think anyone would know. But if I said, can you name any Greek philosophers? You probably could start naming. Well, let's see, Aristotle, Socrates, Plato. We know some of these guys. And Greek thought affected the way our U.S. Constitution was put together. It's impacted mathematics. It's affected the sciences. These guys were all about wisdom, and for some ways, they were very, very successful at it. So, of course, the Corinthians would love to have a spiritual gift of knowledge, that God would just download insights to them. They would then look really, really wise. Here they are saying, I want these sort of things. And Paul is not saying, those are bad, those are evil, stay away. No, he's saying these are gifts that God gives. However, they are not ultimate. Because one day prophecy will fade. Because if you follow Jesus, then when your life ends, you're going to stand before the throne of God, and you won't need God to speak to you through some human. Because you'll be right there hearing directly from God yourself. And you won't need someone speaking in tongues, helping you understand the gospel in your language, because when God speaks, everyone can understand. And you won't need to go and get a bunch of knowledge, because he says in chapter 12, and we're going to talk about this later today and also next week, but he says, in this life, we see dimly. But when we get there in the presence of God, we will see fully. We're not going to need this knowledge, this word of knowledge, because we will just know. These things will fade. They will pass away. They will cease but love will not. Even when you're in the presence of God, love will continue. And notice when he says that these things will end. Verse 10, he says, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now here's the rub. What does Paul mean by perfect? This is kind of a little debate within uh, Christendom because there are some people who would say the Bible because the word that's translated perfect can also mean complete. And so they see it that Paul means that when the Bible was complete, when this was finished, now we have everything. Because we don't need prophets anymore because God's told us what we need. We don't need someone to speak in tongues anymore because this can be translated into our language. We don't need this word of knowledge because God's given us all the knowledge we need. And so they would say, therefore, that when the Bible was finished, these gifts came to an end. But there's others who say, mm, no, I, I, I don't think so. Because when I read the Bible, I kind of still feel like I don't always understand it. I, I need some knowledge. And, and there's others who would say, well, man, sometimes when a pastor preaches, I feel like God's speaking through a human, and I, I really learn through it. And, and others are arguing, well, you know, we've got groups like Wycliffe who are going out translating the Bible into other languages. And if they have spiritual gift of tongues, it, it could help. And, and they see, no, I think there's still a need for some of these. And so they would say, I think the perfect is heaven. That once you're in God's perfect presence, now it's complete. Now it's done. Now we don't need prophecy and knowledge and these other gifts. But notice Paul's point. Whether you say it's the Bible that's perfect or you say that it's heaven that's perfect, Paul's point is that they're going to fade. These gifts will end. They will cease now, we can go and debate whether they're still for this day or not. Paul's not getting into that debate at the moment because he's just saying, guys, you hold these up as ultimates, but they're not because they will end. But when you get into God's presence, his love for you will not end. It will extend forever and ever and ever. That's how great love is. 
Now, it's one thing, I think, for us to know that. To say, okay, great, love lasts forever. What does that mean for Monday? Like, Aaron, I've got to go to work. You don't know the people I work with. How does the knowledge that love is forever impact my home, my workplace, my neighborhood? So I really gave some thought to that this week. And I I came up with three different ways that I think that when you really understand that love is forever, that it impacts you. And those three things are that you're more likely to give grace, you also have a desire to pursue truth, and you also will be looking for perfection. Let, Let me break those down for you. First, give grace. At Riverwood, we talk about leading with grace, but leaning on truth. When we talk about leading with grace, we, we, we say this is giving grace to people when we meet them. I, the way I put it is it's front-end grace. That as you meet someone, we're not going to be the type of people who are going to judge someone based on the type of car that they drove into the parking lot, based on the, the clothes that they're wearing, based on their skin color. We're, we're going to avoid those assumptions about people as much as we can. Because what we want to do is say that the ground at the foot of the cross is completely leveled. This story about Jesus is for everyone. And I've known people that can dress up, they can look good, look like they have it all together, and their life is a mess. And we would miss out on ministering to them because we're going to think, well, they don't have any problems. And and the flip side, we might see someone who's "Ah, not dressed all that great, their car's got some rust on it like mine, and they might start making some judgments about that. And then you find out that, whoa, actually there's like a deep spiritual maturity there. And we'd miss out on it because we ran to assumption. That's why we've got to give front end grace. We need to lead with grace. So as we meet someone, we're going to give them the benefit of the doubt. Doesn't mean we're going to be just dumb and open and, and whatever they say and, and make ourselves, you know, available to be hurt. But we at least are going to be generous enough to give them grace at the onset. Because guess what? God gave us grace at the onset. And so we're going to give front end grace. But I think also when you start realizing that love is forever, you don't just give front in grace, you give back into grace. Because when you meet someone, you give them grace, a friendship maybe starts to form, you're beginning to now love them for the long term. And then they hurt you. They say something that, ah, oh, they, it, it just it got inside, that they did something, they didn't follow through on their word, they, they, they cheated on you, it, it, it hurts. That's when you have to give back in grace. Another word for it would be is forgiveness. You have to forgive. Because if you don't forgive, then bitterness is going to start getting rooted within you. And bitterness will rot a relationship like cancer kills cells. It will not help. It it is a lack of forgiveness that often leads to many divorces. It's a lack of forgiveness that leads to many rifts between parent and child. It's a lack of forgiveness that causes people to impulsively quit jobs and hurt their reputation. Last week in our growth group, I wish I could remember who said it, but uh, this is why you got to get in a growth group because you'll hear really good things like this that I don't say. Uh, they said that, that not forgiving someone is like taking a poison pill but expecting the other person to die. That's gold. That's good. And it's accurate. It's right. When you don't forgive, you are actually rotting yourself out inside. The scriptures teach us, though, that God forgave us. Romans 5 says that while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, 
Christ died for us. He forgave us of our sin. And so then, Paul writes in in Ephesians chapter 4, he's writing to this church in Ephesus, and he says, So therefore, forgive one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. And so because God has forgiven you through the cross of Jesus, then you can forgive others of their sin. Now, I'm not going to say it's easy. Some of you have probably been hurt deeply and dearly, especially the closer the person is. And yet, remember, it's tough to love. Love is tougher. God has empowered you to be able to forgive. So you turn to him and you ask him to help you to forgive that person because otherwise it's going to rot you out inside and you will not be loving for the long term. But because love is forever, it requires, it demands that we forgive. But then there's one more area that we have to give grace. Not only do we give front in grace and back in grace, we also have to give self-grace. You were there when you did that stupid thing back in college. You were there when you sat down to watch some things that you knew you shouldn't be. You were there when you had a few too many substances which led to those mistakes. You were there when you cheated. You were there at those moments. And you've seen your weaknesses, you've seen your failings, and you struggle to forgive yourself. And yet, God has forgiven you. And when you say, yeah, but Aaron, you don't know how bad it was. You don't know what I did. I can't forgive myself. You're basically saying, hey, God, I know that you you said Jesus died on the cross, forgive me of my sins, but it it can't cover this one. I'm going to have to work this one out. And now you're trying to be God. Instead, you have got to surrender, submit, confess, and you allow God to forgive it. Because if you are sitting there harboring these things within yourself, against yourself, you're not going to be able to go and love purely. Because you will live in fear that you will just go and hurt these people again. And so you will hold back. You have to forgive yourself. You know, I am not saying that we can just go about freely sinning and just, you know, hey, let's just have fun because, ah, oh, we just forgive ourselves for it anyway. No, that, that's not understanding sin. That's not understanding grace. But when you see God's grace for you, you've got to give grace to yourself. Forgive yourself so that you can begin to love those around you for the long term. All right? So first thing I think that when we see that love is forever, it leads us to give grace. Second thing I see is I think it creates a hunger within us to pursue truth. Jesus, when he was asked by uh, Philip, I think it was, hey, Jesus, just show us the Father, and and that will be enough. Jesus says, don't you understand? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. I'm the gate. So if you want God you got to come to me because he is the truth. And so we pursue after truth. And as we pursue after truth, we begin to see Jesus more and more for who he really is. The way I uh, equate it is it's like going through life in a fog. Uh, Again, down in verse 12, Paul talks about how we look through a mirror dimly in this life, but that one day we will see clearly. If you've ever been driving or walking out in a super heavy fog, the things that are in the distance, you can't see very well, or maybe not even see at all. But as you continue to walk, you can see right what's in front of you. 
And you might begin to see a shape. And so you start walking towards it. And the closer you get, the more clearly it becomes. It's still foggy. You still can't see it clearly. But you have an idea of what's there. I think that's what it's life, going through life. We live in a fog. I have to confess, I have never seen Jesus in person. And yet, I believe he not only existed in history, he still exists to this day. But I follow him like one walking through a fog. I see enough to know the direction I'm walking, and I keep going, but there's still a fog there. But when you know that God's love is for you, is forever, you continue to pursue this idea, continue to look at the gospel, you continue to pursue truth, and things continue to get clearer and clearer the further you go. Now, the fog will not be completely lifted until this life is gone. When, when the veil of this life goes up, now we will see fully. Otherwise, we're still in the fog, but you can get close enough that you continue to see it clearer and clearer and clearer. There's an old, old spiritual uh, that the, uh, I, I think the Gaithers probably made it famous. Uh, another guy named Wayne Watson uh, recorded it. But, but the chorus just simply says this, that one day Jesus will call my name. As the days go by, I hope I don't stay the same. I want to get so close to him that it's no big change on that day that Jesus calls my name. I would love that. That the day the fog lifts, I realize I was right there standing that close and I saw him and now I would see him in all of his glory. And I think what compels us, what keeps us walking is realizing that God's love is there for us forever. So I think that when we understand this truth, it helps us to give grace, it helps us to pursue truth, but then I think it also helps us, creates a desire within us to look for perfection. A lot of us are looking for perfection in life. We, we think if we just get the right job, the perfect job, that'll do it. Or, or if we could just achieve a certain income level. Or, or if we just could marry the right person. Or, or if we just have the right house or the right car, then my life will be perfect. But those things are just like prophecy. They're just like tongues. They're just like knowledge. They will pass away. All of them, they will fade, they will go, they will cease. Don't look for perfection there. But I think there's a desire within us for perfection. And the only person who was ever perfect, absolutely complete, was Jesus. And so we look for perfection by looking for Jesus. When we understand that, that Jesus' love for us is forever, it should blow our minds. And we want to know this more and more. And so we keep looking for perfection by looking for Jesus. And when we understand that, it will radically shape how we do life. Last week, I had the opportunity to share with you that video of Catherine's story. Uh, and it, I don't know about you, but I found it really powerful. Uh, well, this week, as I was working on my message, I thought of another video that I had seen a few years ago. And so I wanted you to watch just a portion of Ian and Larissa's story. Ian and I first met in 2005 at college and had a blast for 10 months getting to know each other. And I was looking through and I found one of my favorite pictures, which I think was actually taken right before his accident. He set up a camera on his, his tripod. And it's just a classic Ian face that to me sums up who he is. We'd been dating for 10 months and he was working an extra job for his dad and he was on his way to work near Pittsburgh. 
and we got a phone call that he had been in an accident and we didn't know if it was when he got to work or on his way and so we got down to Pittsburgh and I was just praying the whole time in the car that it wouldn't be his brain. After being at the hospital for a few hours, we found out that it was, and he had been in brain surgery for a few hours and had suffered a traumatic brain injury. God totally spared his life. One night, he was failing four out of five brain activity tests, and the next morning, he was doing well, and his brain was starting to respond again. I moved in with his family after the accident, so I was really involved in his therapy and just did whatever I could to make his life fun. We'd go out on dates, and looking back, it's weird because he couldn't talk and he couldn't eat. So we probably looked like complete weirdos being on dates, but we had a blast, and I just talked to him all the time. I knew that before Ian's accident, he was very serious about marriage and was ring shopping, so. I knew where he was, and that helped me so much. After he couldn't talk, I knew that he loved me, and I knew where he wanted the relationship to go because we were dating very intentionally. We just prayed that marriage would someday happen and watched all of our friends get married and start having families. That was challenging, but we just tried to hold out hope that that would be us someday. our board of gratefulness and we encourage anybody who comes in to write a note of something they're thankful for it could be really small mine is just Saturday mornings and it's just a good way that we found to be just practicing gratefulness and Ian I think half of yours say uh -huh. my wifey uh -huh. which is pretty cool uh -huh. We decided that we couldn't really consider marriage as an option until Ian was able to communicate. But if he could communicate with me, then we could have a marriage, knowing it would be really different. But as long as Ian could talk to me, then we could make it work. So once Ian began communicating, it became a little bit more of an option. And then we just kind of watched Ian progress. Uh. Hi, husband. Uh, I don't be. How are you? Uh, yeah, yeah. What? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. How was your day? Yeah. A conversation I had with his dad, it was one of those conversations where I realized this could happen. Then that August, his dad was diagnosed with brain cancer. And at that point, his dad's biggest concern was Ian and I, and whether or not we we're gonna get married or step away from our relationship. He wanted us to make a decision to move our lives in some direction. He passed away before he was able to see us get engaged, but that was a huge impetus in why we started to pursue engagement. I think what helped us in deciding to make this commitment to each other, at least for me, is knowing that Ian wouldn't have left me if the roles were reversed and that we love each other and we know that God's going to be faithful to our marriage. We're able to love each other with, I think, a more Christ-like love because of Ian's disability and just understand that picture a little bit better than if you were healthy. Yeah. Do you agree? Yes. Yeah. 
What about God enables you to have have a happy marriage? You know, what? He's awesome. He's awesome. Yeah. If you want to know more of Ian and Larissa's story, you can go online. Uh, there's more to that video, uh, and I think they've written a book together. What I noticed in their story was that they clearly understand that, that God loves them and that his love is forever. And you noticed in there the way that they gave each other grace. It, it was evident to see Larissa's grace towards Ian. I mean, Ian can't do a lot of things that you would hope a lot of husbands would do. So she's shouldering a lot of the marriage, and yet she's giving him an abundant amount of grace. But Ian also has to give her grace. Because I'm sure there's moments where she gets frustrated with the situation. Or, or maybe she forgets to give his medication, or he needs some help, and she's not right there in the moment. And, and so he also has to give her grace. But, but then the image of them out there with their friends, reading a book together, studying. What is marriage? Because the world tries to tell them, here's what a marriage should look like, and, and their, their marriage looks very different. And yet, they're pursuing truth of what is marriage? What is love? And so they're pursuing after this truth, but yet you saw them looking for perfection. And they knew they weren't going to find it in their marriage. They weren't going to find it in the traditional American dream. We see them looking for Christ. And they actually have come to a place where they see how their marriage and the struggles in it have helped them to have a more Christ-like love than if they had just been able to go on with the dream they thought they were chasing. Do you see how having this idea that love is forever impacts your marriage? It impacts your parenting? It impacts you at work? It enables you to love for the long term. But for you to love for the long term, you're going to have to give grace to others, to yourself. You've got to continue to pursue truth. Keep walking through the fog, going after Jesus, and look for his perfection. Don't look for perfection in other things. Get so close to Christ that when that day, when the curtain is pulled up and you were fully in the presence of God, it's not that big of a change. So, may you, my church family, realize that love is forever. Father, I pray that you would create this understanding within us, that we would chase after love, that, that we would see it is forever because you are forever. You are the very definition of of love. Your love was revealed on the cross, yet your love is revealed by giving us air to breathe. Your, your love is, is seen in the, the blessings that are around us, but your love is also there to carry us through the tough times. Father, forgive us when we put our hopes and dreams on the partial, whether it be spiritual gifts or, or we look for it in our marriage or in our house or in our job or in our reputation. We, we try to find perfection in these other things, and yet these things will all fade. The only thing that lasts is you and your love. So, Father, help us to be a people that will lead with grace, that we would continue to lean on truth, and that we would look for Jesus so that we can love for the long term. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.